You're listening to a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Warwick Smith, research economist at Per Capita. Warwick joined me in the studio to talk about the history of unemployment policy in Australia. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. I have with me in the studio uh, Warwick Smith, who is a research economist at Per Capita, which is a think tank based in Melbourne. And um, Warwick has written this wonderful report, which is on the history of unemployment policy in Australia. You can access this report on the Per Capita website. And he's also written an op-ed uh, for the New Daily and, um, and you can I'm sure check that out from his uh, Twitter account, which is Rico Eco. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Warwick. Pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's great to have you because um, there's so much econo babble, as um, I'll use a Richard Dennis term there, um, it, within this whole area of employment. And there's also layers of ideology across the history of this field. I'm really glad that um, you took the time to, to take us through this history um, in the report. And First of all, let's start with the idea of full employment because this was actually once an aim, an Australian policy aim of multiple Labor and Liberal governments. How was that the case? Yeah, that is the case and it it first really became the case in 1945 uh, when the policymakers of the time had lived through both the Great Depression and the Second World War. And they learnt really important lessons from those experiences. You know, the Great Depression, we had unemployment around 20% in Australia and, and in some instances and in some places much higher and particularly youth unemployment was much higher than that. And this wasn't caused by some kind of fundamental economic circumstance. There was nothing wrong with the Australian economy. There was nothing wrong with our agriculture. There was nothing wrong with our mining sector. There was nothing wrong with, with, with any of our economy, really. It was a financial crisis that caused this problem. And these policymakers of the time realised that it didn't have to be that way. You know, there were, there were policy options that, um, that could see full employment maintained. And that was demonstrated very clearly by the experience of the Second World War. You know, we came straight out of the Depression into the Second World War and suddenly everybody had a job. Mm. Absolutely everybody had a job. And, and you know, two-thirds of the economy effectively was either employed directly in the armed services or supporting the armed services in the conflict. Um, and coming out of the Second World War, these, these policy thinkers were saying, well, if we can employ everybody for a war, why can't we employ everybody during the peace? And, and that's pretty much exactly what they did. So when the Second World War ended, the, um, the government at the time, the Curtin government, prepared a white paper on full employment. And what they mean by full employment is that everybody who wants a job can find one. That's the simplest definition of full employment. And it doesn't mean there's no unemployment because there's a certain level of unemployment that's the technical term is frictional unemployment that is necessary just in switching from one job to another or after finishing a qualification and looking for a job or being retrenched and and being retrained for another job. There's always some level of unemployment and back in those days, that level was about between one and a half and two percent. Well, that's a pretty stark contrast to the current actual rate of unemployment that's measured, isn't it? That's right, absolutely. And not only that, but the current rate of unemployment is 
has a very tight definition, mm. which is anybody who is working less than one hour per week and who could start work within a week. And so we have a lot of people in Australia who aren't technically unemployed, but they're underemployed, which is another term. That's for people who would like to work more but can't get more hours. And there are a lot of those in Australia. Well, given the casualisation of the workforce, that's, you know, one aspect of underemployment, but also women um, who work part-time, if they also care for children or uh, elder parents, would be classed as underemployed potentially? Potentially, if only if they want more hours. Mm. So often the the case in those circumstances, they might be part-time and they might be stressed for money and need more money, but they they physically can't work more hours sometimes because of their other commitments. Indeed. Well, let's go to this white paper um, from, was it 1945 you mentioned? Um, And I mean, you quote um, this paper at length. It's on page 13 if anyone's uh, playing along at home. And um, this is really interesting in terms of the terminology um, that's used and the idea that we'd be wasting resources if we were, if we had a high level of unemployment, and it's the first and greatest step to higher living standards for all, if we actually, um, you know, make sure that we we achieve full employment. I mean, that's a, a very. It's in a positive. It's talking about employment in a positive to begin with, as well as unemployment, um, and the idea that it, it has many benefits and that it's a collective benefit, not just an individual yes, benefit. Yes. I mean, what um, what do you think that this white paper really demonstrates? about the thinking at the time? Well, I think there's a a lot of things, actually, we can learn from this white paper. One is political ambition, you know, just being really brave and bold. And another thing is about the complexity of of the conversation. I think we've lost a lot of complexity and nuance in our conversation about the role of government and about economic management. And the white paper doesn't balk from any of that. It talks about capitalism and, and a market-based capitalist system and that if if we want the benefits of a market-based capitalist system, which, you know, they're embracing in the white paper, um, then we need to acknowledge the costs of that system. And one of the costs is unemployment. In a, in a market-based system, there are always, by definition, pretty much, there are going to be winners and losers. And if we want if we want the winners and we want the benefits, then we need to collectively look after the losers. If that's a decision we're making that we're going to embrace that system, then we should take responsibility for the losers. And some of those losers are the unemployed. And so this white paper says we have a collective responsibility because these, are, these people are a product of the system that we're embracing. We have a collective responsibility to look after them and, and that's precisely what they did. Mm. And presumably they um, got some of their bravery or political courage from um, the fallout of World War Two, and that it was a time of great upheaval and change and and obviously you can capitalise on the fact that, you know, it's easier to make reform when there's already change occurring. Yeah. Um, what were some of the reforms that they did actually enact or create um, from this white paper? Well, they created a, a situation really where there was finance available to local government in particular, but also um, federal government agencies and even some private agencies where if somebody came asking for a job, they could get one. So you could walk up to a, a rail yard ask for a job and be given a job. And if you didn't have the right skills for a job that they had, then they would train you in the skills. So 
I mean, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It seems almost <laughs> too simple. I have the same <laughs> attitude about this that I have about homelessness, you know, that clearly the best solution to homelessness is to provide people with homes, right? Indeed. Same yeah. with joblessness. Provide people with jobs. Mm. Well, it was called the Commonwealth Employment Service, which I really like because um, it just seems also very straightforward. We're here to make sure that you're employed. Yes. And that if the private sector cannot provide that employment, that the government will step in and provide it. That's right. So their, their sort of macroeconomic story, their big economic story about the economy was that Unemployment is a result of insufficient demand for labour from the private sector, right? which is a pretty basic, straightforward explanation for unemployment. The, the private sector, businesses, um, are not employing enough people. And so the government acknowledged that it can and should use its spending power as the Commonwealth government to sort of prop up the economy to the point where full employment is created. And now that doesn't mean employing all of those people because... Uh, there are lots of other ways to promote employment. But, but at, a, at a baseline level, those people who can't get a job, that's right, they, they're employed. And, and the impact of that is that those people then have uh, an active economic life. They, they're, they're consumers and they have a wage. They spend money, that props up the businesses around them. Those businesses then do better. They employ more people, so on and so on. So the, the effect when it's fully employed of a, of a full employment policy is is not a huge government outlay because what they're really doing is just picking up when the economy falls a little bit and that stops other businesses from contracting and firing people, et cetera, et cetera, and there's a sort of downward spiral that can occur in those circumstances in the absence of, of government intervention. Yeah, absolutely, and that makes sense. And the interesting thing that I found when I read your piece was that the Commonwealth Employment Service operates very differently or operated very differently from Centrelink and the way that we now currently do it and that it offered a certain level of security that does not exist under something like New Start now. What was it offering, apart from that idea of uh, full employment and that you could walk in and definitely get a job, what were some of the features that made that particularly unique and effective? Well, they had individual case management that instead of, as it is today, where they're, you know, watching whether you're performing the right tasks that they're asking you to perform, regardless of how useful those tasks are, instead of basically being police... They, they were dedicated to assisting people finding work and, and reasonably resourced to do so. So they could, for instance, provide money to, to relocate if you needed to relocate for a job. So uh, in a sense, it's a, a subsidy to, to get people to move to the right places where there are work. Um, and they could direct you to the right sort of training for the kind of work that's around at the time. They'd assess your skills and... and match you up with jobs that fit your skills was very targeted and and dedicated so the first option always was to try to get people into private sector employment Um, and then the job guarantee was a sort of fallback from there indeed and was the um the support or the welfare support um that they provided during that transition period was that substantial 
Uh, wouldn't well compared to now. I'm just making the the point that New Start is very low in terms of um, the ability for anyone to really live on it, yeah. and also then be an active job seeker, an effective active job mm. seeker. I mean, was it supported enough in terms of someone's ability to feel empowered and and not too financially stressed that it really was an overwhelming thing? No, the, strictly speaking, the unemployment benefit was still very low, but but the simple fact was that if it was too low, you could go and get a job, mm. right? Yeah. So if, if, if you didn't have enough money to sustain a job search to get the job you really wanted, then you could walk into somewhere like a rally and get a job. Mm. So the circumstances were just very different and people weren't, weren't unemployed for long. There was no category called long-term unemployed back then. Yeah, well, that brings us to a great um, point in the story because when we have um, what you would class as full employment, it means that uh, the workers would have greater power, um, bargaining mm. power for income and wage growth, um, and also to know that should you leave your job because the conditions aren't right or you um, would prefer to work in another sector, that it's likely that you will very quickly be employed again. That's right. I mean, that is a, a huge, it's almost a foreign country. Um, when you think about that concept now, what, um, you know, how did this lead to the idea of um, inflation and the, I guess, pushing down of of wages and that balancing act that is now, um, has been input through that that lovely um, act what is it, acronym that I, um, that you might know off the, the top Nairu. of your head. Yeah. Yes. The non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. That's right. As I say in the report, only an economist could come up with that. I'm yeah. in the paper. Um, yeah, so what you said at the beginning is is really correct, that having full employment gives power to labour. So workers, the ultimate bargaining chip a worker has is to walk away. And when there's a big pool of unemployed people ready to take their job, that's not much of a threat, right? It's not much of a threat to the employer. And so, but when there's full employment and labour's hard to come by, then that really does give um, labour extra power to demand better conditions and higher wages. And again, that was explicitly acknowledged in the 1945 white paper. What the government said was, yes, this will create upward pressure on inflation, but the government will use all of its other powers to put downward pressure on inflation to compensate. And included in that was uh, an acknowledgement that the government can help to improve productivity. There's another another term that we'll have to wrestle with is, is mm. productivity. And labour productivity is basically just a measure of how much economic output, what value can be produced with an hour of labour. So that's labour productivity. And then there's total productivity, which is uh, how much can pre- be produced uh, in value when you combine both labour, well, labour, capital and land. Mm. Okay. So in terms of <clears throat> labour productivity and tying that to incomes, I mean, what is the relationship between that at the moment? And, you know, what was the relationship at the time? Yeah, so as I was saying... Having a low unemployment level means that workers have quite a strong capacity to demand wage increases. And what happens if if wages grow faster than labour productivity, that is the amount you're paying your workers increases faster than the value they're producing, 
that's when you, that's when you start to get inflation, uh, because inflation is what you can buy for your money, really. So it's it's the value of money. Um, so when there's more of it, or more uh, more people having higher disposable incomes, they can spend more, and does that then increase inflation? Well. Only if production can't keep up with that increase in spending. Mm. So that's the issue about productivity. So if wages are going up faster than the things that people want, than the quantity of things that people want to buy, whether that's goods or services, then there's more money bidding for a limited number of goods and services. And, and the result of that is that the people who are providing those goods and services can start selling them to the highest bidder. Mm. Right? So they'll sell them to the people who are willing to pay the most. And that lifts, and that lifts the average price. And at that time, you know, at the white paper time, and then moving into this this point of um, neoliberalism and and bringing in this Nairu, um, what I mean, what were the? I guess, sorry, I've just lost my train of thought. Um, in terms of where people's uh, power was, you're saying that the labour movement um, had greater power before this and then they're losing power now And in terms of this um, this focus on inflation and making sure that we keep inflation down and that's the focus of um, the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia now, as opposed to at the time the, the federal government having that power. That's um, right. You know, they had more levers, I guess, to pull at the time um, because it was was not a deregulated economy. It was pre-Keating. Yep. Um, now that we have the Reserve Bank uh, pulling those levers in terms of inflation and um, this this lovely acronym Nairu, what um, is available in terms of the levers to pull um, for inflation that might be um, different to what we're currently doing? Are there any other different measures that we could be utilising apart from um, maintaining a certain level of unemployment, which, um, you know, what is the current level of unemployment that's desired? Well, they reckon about 5.5% is is the estimate of the Nauru. So we didn't really talk about the Nauru, Mm. but the Nauru is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And that is a kind of fancy way of saying the level of unemployment below which we'll start to get inflation pressure. So the idea is at the moment, I think it's the IMF have our our Nauru at uh, 5.5%. And the thinking is that if we fall below 5.5%, then Labor will gain enough power to push wages beyond productivity. That's the theory. And the tricky thing about that is that there's no formula for the Nairu, right? Everybody calculates it a bit differently. There's not really an agreed-on idea of what it is amongst economists. Um, but despite that, we, we kind of use it and we, and we think in those terms. And it, it completely ignores all of the other things that influence inflation, as the white paper did. The white paper talked about the different ways that inflation pressures occur and the way that government can put downward pressure on inflation and that's sort of bringing you to your question. Um, so what and, are some of those measures, sorry, about yeah. that influence inflation? Because we really are, we're talking about one of those aspects which is has been key in terms of how a neoliberal um, economy is run and we're focusing on making sure that wage growth doesn't get, inverted commas, out of control. Uh, what are some of the other reasons why inflation might occur? Well, the, the key things that keep inflation down are... Uh, well, innovation really is is the word. Um, the but buzzword. That can t- but, that can, <laughs> but that can take many different forms. Um, and so it can be innovation in how we do things. 
um, or it can be innovation in, in sort of what we do to produce what we produce. Uh, so the skills of the workers are a big part of productivity. So education is a big element in productivity and so is research and development um, and sort of workplace innovation in terms of workplace culture and the workplace environment can really affect productivity. And do you think then that um, that those particular areas could be utilised better at the moment? Absolutely. And, and again, this contrast between now and the post-war boom days when the government explicitly saw its role as promoting innovation in Australia and they set up several um, great institutions, the CSIRO being one of them. The CSIRO was for many years considered the premier government research organisation in the world um, and they, they did amazing things, particularly for agricultural productivity, but in all sorts of areas across the Australian economy. And so that was government-funded research that was then essentially just handed out to the private sector to use and and that those innovations really played a big role in, mm. in um, increasing Australia's labour productivity. And now we're really reliant upon the private sector to innovate. That's right. And far less on government funding um, and certainly the CSIRO has been hollowed out um, as we've seen in the news over the last few few years. Um, well, even longer than that but yep. more substantially in the last few yep. years. I mean... What, uh, like, why should we be focusing on perhaps some of these other levers as opposed to, um, you know, unemployment? Well, I think the human cost is the obvious answer. Um, and what's preventing us? Is it, is it just ideology, do you think, at the moment, or political palatability? Yes, I do think it's ideology. And it, it's a, you know, it's a story of class and power, ultimately, Um it's kind of unfashionable to talk about class and power these days. It's very, but, very um, unfashionable. But that's what this story is about. It's about what the white paper acknowledged as as a f- sort of fundamental clash between capital and labour. There's no there's no kind of getting around the existence of this clash. That that if the owners of capital, so you combine, you know, our economy is combining capital and land with labour to produce goods and services, and unemployment and this talk about inflation is um, a sort of story about how we divide the national product, you know, what we produce as a nation between the owners of capital and the workers. And at the moment, that balance is really in favour of the owners of capital, as we see with with corporate profits increasing 65% last year and wages basically flat. Mm -hmm. So we're doing really well as an economy, but Wage earners are not are not seeing that at the moment. No, and we are in terms of wage growth, it is just dismal. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, the public service is doing slightly better than those in the private sector, but um, it's not a huge difference. Is no, it? it's not a huge difference. And and so yeah, coming back to your question, this is an ideological battle, and the owners of capital for a long time hated the post-war boom years, right? Inequality was falling, and if inequality is falling, it means the people at the top are slowly but steadily getting a smaller share of our of our product, and they couldn't overturn the um, the full employment policy of those years because it was too popular. You know, um, Menzies almost lost an election because unemployment crept up towards three <laughs> percent, um, and so 
they had to wait, really. They had to wait. And they were formulating these ideas, which were about individualism and freedom and, you know, those are the, the kind of uh, excuses, I suppose, for the policies. Um, but ultimately they're about shattering the power of labour. And, mm-hmm. and the oil shocks of the 1970s were what allowed them a door in. They could say, okay, we, so we had out-of-control inflation because um, OPEC cut back the supply of oil and the prices went through the roof. And because oil sits behind almost everything, the prices of almost everything went up. Mm-hmm. And we had this out-of-control inflation. And here were these free market ideologues waiting in the wings and they jumped in and said, see, this Keynesian full employment policy is a failure. Um, and by no coincidence, at the same time in the 1970s, those policy, all those policy thinkers who had lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War were either dead or retired. So you had a point sort of weak point uh, at that time because those people were gone and there were new people who'd been trained in this new neoclassical economics, which was about free markets and free choice and individualism. And and they took the reins from the mid-1970s onwards and oriented us towards an individualist approach to unemployment, you know, where where unemployment became the unemployed person's fault really, rather than a collective responsibility, it became an individual responsibility and all of the rhetoric turned to be t- to talk about employability. So if the unemployed, the unemployed need to be trained better, they need to be pushed to write good resumes, they need to be, they need to turn up, they need to, you know, they've got to stay active. And all of that is still part of the same, uh, you know, capital versus labour contest. Because if you get unemployed people who are discouraged, who leave the labour force, or who don't look for work properly, then they don't act as an effective buffer of unemployed people to constrain wages, right? You actually need people who are there ready, willing to take the job of somebody who's taking industrial action or, you know, seeking better wages or seeking better conditions. You need those people clamouring at the doors, right? Because that is the constraint on labour and on wage pressures. Well, that's, excuse me, really interesting because it reminds me of um, your reference to the Accord, which was almost a bit of a halfway house between this, on the extreme, the full free market, um, you know, individualist thinking, and then the earlier Keynesian social democratic approach. There was almost um, somewhat of a social contract in the sense that, yes, we're deregulating the economy, we're removing tariffs, um, there will be job losses in the manufacturing sector and in agriculture but we'll make sure that you're not left behind. Um, how effective that was, I'm not sure. But, you know, there was some move by Labor at that point to try and minimise the, the cost or um, suffering that occurred to those who were um, most disadvantaged. I mean, we've seen um, Labor in particular be one of those parties who has traditionally meant to be representing the worker. I mean, it did originally have social democratic um, origins and and had that in their constitution. What has been the story of Labor in this uh, history of unemployment? And because clearly at the moment, they're not the same as they used to be in terms of the way that they interact in this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. And, you know, it was a Labor government that, um, that, wrote the 1945 white paper and we were relatively lucky that it was a Labor government in power at the time when the sort of international zeitgeist was for neoliberalism 
because, as you say, the, the wages and incomes accord, usually just called the accord, it significantly softened the blow of those reforms uh, for Australian workers when you compare what happened in the United States under Reagan and the UK under Thatcher at the same time, where that was just, you know, these people are collateral damage. We have to modernise the economy and, you know, too bad, really. Sorry, but this is this is what we have to do. Whereas, whereas here, as you say, under the Accord, Labor were actively working the entire time with the union movement, particularly with the ACTU. And what they were saying to the union movement was, yes, you know, this is there's going to be blows to workers in these reforms. There are going to be job losses. And in some instances, there is going to be uh, a sort of lower capacity of workers to demand wages. They acknowledged all of those things. But in return, we're going to increase what we call a social wage. And that's the services uh, and infrastructure that government provide um, to the unemployed, but also just to workers in general and to the population in general. So that included... Um, Medicare, which was, you know, obviously a, a very big win for this country. Um, and and that included, at the time, reasonably generous unemployment benefits uh, and other services to help unemployed people retrain and, you know, increases to education funding. And and the pension being quite decent. That's right. That's and superannuation. Right. Yes, and the introduction of superannuation. Yeah, and I mean, if we're looking now at... Um, then I guess the labour of today, um, is that kind of accord or social contract even marginally in existence or sought by think, the party? I mean, I think it it is, but it's not, it's never made explicit. And I think they could benefit from making it explicit, actually. So, you know, labour labor policy at the moment is a much better funded education system. And that's that's broadly in the in the sort of uh, accord framework that the the better educated we are, the sort of the, the better we're able to demand wages and to you know uh, increase our productivity and all of those things. And and Labor have always been stronger champions of Medicare than than the coalition. Uh, so I think I think all of the vestiges remain, but the sort of story about it is missing mm. and it's it's lost its nuance and it's lost its, you know, okay, yes, we're doing this great thing. There are going to be trade-offs and instead it's all black and white. It's all kind of this is great and we should, you know, and, and we'll sweep the dark bits under the carpet. And that's the case for both sides of politics. There's, the conversation's really, and I think probably because it's become so much more adversarial, um, any sort of admission that there's a negative side of a policy that's the bit that will be taken and run with not the fact that you know yes we've not a negative side and we're going to do something about that but it's we want to do this and it's going to have this cost the cost is the bit that's latched onto by both the media Mm -hmm. and the opposition or you know the opponents whatever it might be the, the government or the opposition um and i think that's quite a big part of the explanation as to why the nuance is gone yeah, because I guess they're seeking um, that most people will be a winner or at least the loudest voices will be the winners. Yeah. And therefore, you you know, you're minimising political damage uh, when it comes to election time. That's right. I mean, you look at Labor's um, education policy where they, where they said no school will lose money. 
You know, that's a classic example. Mm, definitely. Well, I mean, let's just talk about capital's obligations because they don't um, exist in a, a completely free environment. There are regulations and also they have an ethical and moral responsibility um, as, you know, organisations operating in our society as well. Um, they do contribute a lot as well, you know, to people being employed, yep. but yep. they have obligations naturally as individuals do. And one of the interesting um, aspects of their obligation is around, um, I guess, being thinking about who is qualified for a job and making sure that um, I guess they're not closing the door to those who may actually be potentially, um, you know, true meritorious in inverted commas um, applicants and you raise the idea of youth unemployment and that being substantially higher than general unemployment yep. across the nation and you referenced um, on uh, on page 23 there was an interesting point um, that there has never been any evidence that lack of skills or employability disorganisation or poor work ethic are a substantial cause of youth unemployment. So I mean there is a bit of a, a su suggestion within that or an implication that uh, are we really looking at um, those coming through the tertiary education system and those graduates as not being desirable because they lack experience as opposed to, um, you know, lacking skills and, and knowledge? Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a bigger, issue, bigger picture issue really that if, if there aren't enough jobs for the number of people who are looking for jobs, which is the case at the moment, then those who are going to get the jobs are the ones with experience. So, so the elevated youth unemployment is simply a, a reflection of the fact that there is unemployment. So that, you know, there's obviously a trade-off at some point with jobs in terms of, you know, you, you get the younger worker who's the fresh graduate, you pay them less. Mm. But in a tight jobs environment, you can usually get somebody with some experience and pay them pretty much the same, right? Because there's a lot of unemployed people out there and, and wage growth is pretty flat. And so that trade-off when there's a high unemployment for, for employers is less of a trade-off and they can usually afford that person with a bit of experience. You know, it might be two years experience, but that can make quite a big difference. Yeah, it's interesting because um, it's often said that the best hiring practices promoting or hiring on potential rather than experience because mm. you get the best out of people. Are they not shooting themselves in the foot, I guess, for not fostering a pipeline enough? Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's an exaggeration to say all this stuff isn't going on. It's just that, obviously, you know, there are plenty of graduates who do get jobs. Um, and, you know, university graduates are, are a smaller part of the story, now, this story is more about those people who don't go to university. Now, they're much yeah. more overrepresented in terms of the unemployed. Indeed. It's also interesting, though, that, that we're seeing a push for people to take up master's degrees and further education because you need to be even more competitive. And I guess that highlights just how significant the disadvantage is between those who don't pursue or can't pursue higher education and then those who are already completing a bachelor's degree and then those who are encouraged even more to continue to spend their money uh, and not be able to take up youth allowance because yes. they're doing a postgraduate degree. I guess it highlights the scale of disadvantage that there is in terms of employment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I think 
you know, some people argue to go back to the to the Nairu. Some people argue that the Nairu is so high now at five and a half percent compared to you know one and a half two percent in previous decades, because a lot of the low skilled jobs have either been replaced by machines or have been sent offshore, and so there there just isn't the same proportion of relatively low skilled jobs that there once were, and so low skilled workers are, are um, left a lot of low skilled workers are left unemployed now. I'm not entirely sure I agree with that, but but even if it's true, we shouldn't be saying, oh, well, we, we need 5.5% unemployment then. We should be saying, all right, well, let's give our workers more skills, better skills. That should be the focus. Mm. It should be on, um, you know, training our workers and in particular training workers who uh, have been in industries that are, that are no longer employing people in Australia. And, so, and those industries that will be declining, such as coal, um, you know, absolutely. and timber industries. I mean, let's now finally look to the future. What are some of the potential solutions, forgetting about the um, political palatability of it, but actually what could we do if we're thinking big about changing things and actually reaching something like full employment that isn't 5.5% but say 2%? Yeah, well, I mean, if if we want to be really ambitious, then we could implement a job guarantee, you know, similar along a similar vein to what was done in the post-war boom where the federal government will through local agencies so it needs to be needs to be local and it needs to be around does the jobs need to be designed around things that actually need doing in those communities not about just creating work for work's sake but things that are that are sort of valuable to local communities they could say you know if you want a job turn up at these places and we'll give you one and if you don't have the skills for any of the jobs that are available then we'll give you the skills we could do that we really could do that and and we could um, go back to to a sort of regime of managing inflation both through fiscal and monetary policy. So that means both through using the use of interest rates as we do it now, but also through the use of targeted spending. So we can we can spend and it's much more effective really to to manage um, inflation through spending because you can do it in particular places. You can say at the moment, we might lift interest rates to soften property prices in Melbourne and Sydney, right, because they're a bit out of control. So they lift interest rates to control property prices. That dampens the economy right across Australia just to manage a problem that's in Melbourne and Sydney. Whereas if you if you take action through fiscal policy, through spending, you can spend it in the places where it's needed and you can pull spending away from places where it's not needed. So it's, there's, there's a lot more nuance mm. in, in that approach to, to both unemployment and to controlling inflation. Absolutely. Um, Warwick, thank you very much for joining us and it's just been absolutely wonderful yeah, to have you. Yeah, it's been great talking with you, Amy. Yeah, um, I, I hope people can and will check this report out. It's on the Per Capita website. Um, it's about the history of um, unemployment policy in Australia and uh, I'm sure they can also check out that op-ed that you've written too, which really um, is very accessible and uh, and very compelling. Yeah, much so. shorter read. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. But it, it still is, I mean, I, I, I think the graphs are also very nice in the report. So those interesting in the stats and the graphs to also check that out. Thank you, Warwick, and have a, a lovely day. Thank you, Amy. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.